Good morning. I don't, I don't know that I see any faces here that I would not recognize from the world of RUF. Um, so I'll save that. Okay, we're going to continue on here for the next few weeks in uh, Timothy. And we're going to look at chapter 5 this morning, verses 17 down through 6-2, which is on your sheet. <coughs> and as we've done every week, you know, I'll just give you that catchphrase that what, uh, what Paul is attempting to do in his letter to Timothy is uh, remind him that the, that the aim of the charge of the, the love of the gospel, what the real gospel does, is produce certain things in the lives of his people, and that's his concern for this. And uh, chapter 5 and chapter 6 have three things together. And it's the, the service and support of widows in the beginning of 5, the service and support of elders that we're going to look at today, and actually slaves as well. And I'm going to try to leave as little time as possible for that last one because it's hard. Um, so let me read this for us and we'll talk together. But what we see here, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke of, as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you care enough about your church that you not only establish it by the blood of your Son, uh, but you care enough about her to give us direction on how to um, organize her and how to protect her. And so there's great wisdom for us in this this morning. And as we talk about it, I pray you would uh, make it of profit to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at the support of elders this morning and then uh, the service of slaves, as it's put in that text. And to start, it, it, this is just a quick thing. If you look at verse 17... Paul says, let the elders rule well, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I'll just say this, the distinction of how many elders there are is uh, where this text has been used over the years. And I'll just say this, 
Some people believe that there is one class of elders, right? There, is ju- there are just simply elders. The Bible talks that there are elders. And some folks believe that there are two classes of elders. Elders who rule and then elders who preach. And this text has been, quite frankly, spoken of in both ways by people, right? Elders who rule and elders who teach, thus teaching and ruling elders. And you can read that text that way, that especially those who labor in preaching and teaching would be a separate class. The other way to read it is, and that Paul, when he gives the description in chapter 3, he doesn't make a distinction. He says that all the elders should have these character traits and should be able to teach. And the reading of that second way, if you're going to say that there's only one class is, is that verse 17 should say, elders who direct the church, namely those who preach. So it's saying one kind. Within our own denomination, there are people that hold both views. Um, And if you want to discuss that more, I'm glad to, whether or not there are ruling and teaching elders or whether or not the Bible just says that there is elders. Um, Paul's point, right, that I don't want to get lost on, is that there is a support of elders that he now spends time on in these next five or six verses. And he talks about the support of elders in this way. The payment of elders the discipline of elders, and the appointment of elders, okay? So, the payment of elders in verses 17 and 18. So, when he says, let the elders who rule well, okay, be considered worthy of double honor. The language of double honor, most folks believe that that is not saying that they should get double pay, but it's trying to say that the idea behind this is that Elders should receive double honor, that is, both respect for the job that they do and remuneration. Okay? Um, Elders who rule well should be cared for. And what he does is he goes to both the Old Testament and the New Testament in his references here. Okay? And the language that he says, he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4 in verse 18. For Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, why in the world would he go to the language of a, an animal? Okay, so the, the Bible uses these kind of devices. You know the, the so much more device that the Bible uses? This is one of those things, okay? If God cares enough about the oxen to believe that they ought to be able to eat while they tread the grain, how much more then should elders receive payment for the labor that they do? Okay? And he uses scripture when he quotes Luke 10, verse 7, when Jesus is actually commissioning the 72, right? So when Jesus commissions the 72 in Luke 10, he says, don't take anything with you, but when you go into the homes, you should receive what they give you. And the implication is, is when one of those disciples comes into their home, that they should receive care. And, okay, I would say that people have used Paul's ministry himself, where he was a tent maker, to say that elders should not be paid. And I would look at you and propose that that is a wrong-headed argument. Paul, himself in Corinthians, makes the case that the reason he does not receive payment is to verify his apostolic witness. Okay, But he says right here, through his own mouth, that elders should receive pay for what they do. Now, let's stop for a second. 
this becomes an interesting subject, I think. Okay? Because the question that it now raises in your mind is what? How much should we pay elders? Right? Isn't that, who said that? Thank you. What a great question. Okay, so the, the caveats that I have to give in terms of, you know, what am I? I'm a teaching elder. Does this seem self-serving? Uh, I don't care. I think it's a great conversation. Right? This is a good conversation. That what Paul is actually trying to say is, is that the men who labor in the job of teaching, governing, preaching, praying, serving, because it's the service of elders that he has talked about in this whole thing, that they should actually receive pay. And if you listen to the call, the language of the call that we use when we ordain and install elders is that they should be free from worldly cares. So that they can devote themselves to this labor. Okay. What's the one thing we can certainly say? Where is Paul going in the next chapter, which we'll look at next week? Hey, don't use the ministry as a means to do what? Get rich. Right? Don't use the ministry as a means to get rich. And I know that at times, in, in, we have rightly said, hey, we look at health and wealth gospels and we look at ministers who are scoundrels and TV evangelists and we just say, that is a load of junk and it's anathema to God. And in the end, their souls might be judged for that. So we all in some ways agree that that is a bad practice. I, I will tell you that most ministers are not in it for the money. Fair? Do y'all believe that? Most ministers have not gone into this role, you know, for the financial packages. Now, that's not self-pity. I make good money. I'm thankful for what the Lord has provided for me. Again, I've said this to you before. As a nation, we're historically the richest people in the world. Okay. But if it's true that a minister should get paid... Now, here's my other caveat. You ready? I ought to say this. All respect to the session at Fort Worth Prez. This is not some veiled thing that ministers here are unhappy. Y'all take care of your pastors. There is nothing about this, right, that is connected with some sort of veiled agenda with Fort Worth Prez or ministers or Brian and I did not collude in any way on this kind of conversation. Okay. I think what I want you to do is think about this. What should the benefits for the ministers... What should you be concerned about for your ministers in terms of their pay? Is the, is the principle clear? The principle is fairly clear to you, right? We should pay our ministers. Anybody? That, that was clear in the text. Okay. How should you pay your ministers? Now, I know the session and a finance committee talks about this. But guess what? Every year, you as the congregation, you sit and you vote to agree on that. Right? Okay. Why, why do I want to press this upon you? What, what should the benefits that elders receive? Should elders... Do you think elders should get retirement? Do you think they should get health insurance? Do you, 
Okay, look, the, the reason why I ask this is this. A couple months ago, or maybe a year ago, a guy came from the Widow's Fund and stood up and said, hey, there is a coming crisis within the denomination. Now, there's some reasons for it. But I, I, just, I do want to take just a moment and go, hey guys, as you go to approve budgets, and as you think about ministers, barring a minister being stupid with his money, or foolish, or sinful, right? What I want you to do is kind of budgets come around. I want you guys to think as you go forward, can the people that we are, that, that are our ministers, can they, can they do it? Can they make it? Can they put money away? Right? When this was written, right, elders oftentimes had families connected to them, but our culture is so widely different uh, and we live in a time where folks have kind of... The, the idea of taking care of generational things has fallen on hard times. And so oftentimes, children may not take care of their parents or may not even have the means to take care of it. And we don't even have a connected culture that does that. I'll make one more thing and then we'll move on. But that is... I, I've been in this for 20 years and I'm watching a generation of teachers, elders, ministers who have gone before me, who are going into retirement, and there are a lot of ministers who will not retire because they never can. And there are ministers who are going to die who are leaving their wives as widows who will not have enough money to survive. That is not to make you feel guilty. The only principle I want to ask is, is that... right is that we take seriously our consideration of how we care for them as they labor. Is that fair? I don't want to guilt you into thinking you don't pay your minister enough. I just, I think there's a practical thing that looks and says there is a lot of ministers who are struggling in that regard. Okay, I think that's fair. We should pay our ministers. Y'all agree? So he goes from paying ministers to this next thing of the discipline of ministers, of elders. Okay? So when you get down to verse 19 through 21, it says, Don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why? Why? Did you hear that? Okay, I'm going I'm to say what he said. Ministers, el, your elders, in dealing with people, both by their ministry of encouragement, but also exhortation and rebuke and counsel and confrontation, at times face a lot of criticism for the work that they do. They don't do it perfectly. But what is Paul guarding against? A disgruntled person... Being able to do what? Divide a church, kill the reputation of the minister, send him out of the ministry, okay? And, again, Paul is using Old Testament precedent and principle. If you look in a number of places, but specifically Deuteronomy 19, 15, and 17, 6, when capital charges were when someone was accused of a capital offense, you could only do it if there were more than, right, two witnesses. 
And actually in 17, or in one of those, it actually says against all offenses, there should be more than one voice. Okay, good. We're trying to predict against how gossip or a disgruntled person can kill the ministry and life of an elder. Okay, now, where is this difficult? Let's just stop for a second. He actually, and I, I was reading one commentary and he says, before we even entertain an accusation, right? Or admit a charge against someone. Okay, where is this a difficult thing in our culture today? Where is the church been sullied? Sex abuse. Okay? Now, you and I ought to think really, really, really long and hard about this. Because if you think about... Okay, where is that often taking place? Who is the victim of that? The unprotected children, the vulnerable, the weak. Who are oftentimes, right, not in a place where they either have a voice or understand how to articulate the voice. Right? And in our, you know, is th- this is, I think this is a fair thing for us to, to say. In our world, it, man, so much of the time that voice has been silenced. And I think we have this real challenge. How in the world do we navigate that? Okay? Um, but he is concerned that ministers do not go down unnecessarily. Now, I don't want to be unsensitive to the fact that the church is facing, right, a time where she has been terribly negligent in the way she has pursued justice for the weak. Okay. Um, Okay, you can't, there's got to be more than one voice. So that, let's think about this. Uh, before a charge is brought against an elder, before, right, um, there's got to be multiple voices that are saying that this is, that this is what has happened, that this is what is true. Okay, so he goes that there is a protection of elders against false accusation, right? Whew. Thank you, Jesus, that you want to protect, right, the shepherds in that regard. But he goes from, from saying that, right, there is this, this um, support of elders in terms of being protected against false accusation. And then he turns right around and says what? As for those who persist in sin, though, what are they supposed to do? Rebuke them where? In the presence of all. Okay, so... Uh, Matthew 18 still does apply even to elders, right? So if you go back and look and say, if it's private sin of an elder, then someone privately should go to an elder and speak to them and go through the real process of seeking it in the right way. But if a minister, if an elder persists in a sin, and that sin is public, and even if the sin is private but he persists in it, and Matthew 18 has been... Right, done well, then what they're supposed to do 
is to publicly stand and rebuke okay, that brother. And um, now, in the presence of all, why? What's the motive? So that what? So that all will fear. Okay. Um, yeah, this is worth doing. Discipline is such a strange word. And um, I, by way of illustration, and, and I, I, will, I, I will not give any details, but um, I would have loved to have been here Friday night for the RUF thing for TCU. But I had to be in Dallas because of Presbytery and some discipline stuff that was occurring. And, um, you know, have you heard people say, like, who are you to judge? Right? Or or that they would say that the reason I don't like the church is because they actually... You know, I've, I've heard people who are offended that we would actually publicly rebuke and discipline someone for sin. Okay, why is that so beautiful, though? It's a true sign of the church. What do you mean? I, I would agree with you. There is a protection of the fact. And so for you, you know, as you speak about it as a, as, a, right, as a lay person in the pew, there's also this beauty of the fact that Jesus wants to protect multiple things, both the glory of His name, but He also wants to protect the church because He takes sin seriously. And when elders persist in it, we're not simply going to let hypocrisy Run free. We're going to discipline elders. Just like we would anybody else. To protect them so that they can't live believing that the hypocritical life is something they can live and think that they're safe and fine. But also to protect you. Okay? Um, And the beauty is, so there's this kind of his desire to see um, witnesses, right? Protection against false accusation, but a real thing of discipline, but also this idea of that there's no partiality in either case, in either way, right? Because in verse 21, he says, look, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. And he gives two conditions. Without prejudging, and without partiality. 
Okay? So, Paul invokes two different authorities. He says that he charges you, and he invokes his own apostolic authority. But he also says, invokes the divine authority of God himself, right? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's the way with which I charge you. He says, I charge you to keep these things. Those things he said before. All of it. I charge you to make sure that elders are paid. But I also charge you to make sure that there's not false accusations that are allowed in. But also that discipline gets done. And... I want you to do it in such a fashion that these two conditions are met. And the language of prejudging is this. Is that when we come to accusing and disciplining elders, we're to make sure that the process through the church does not come to hasty decisions, right? To assume guilt or innocence in either way as we do it and not to jump to conclusions. And this is the funny thing. Presbyterians get such a funny rap, right? The language I've heard forever is, you guys have to do everything by committee. You can't make a decision about what color napkins to use at your party without forming a committee, right? And sadly, for some ways, it's true. Sometimes, don't you just wish, like, just pick a color of a napkin? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's... Well, here's the deal. All I have to say to you is that Paul looks and says that elders... I, it's not that other people should not be treated with respect. I think he's trying to say, in light of his larger argument in the book, right, that elders who are faithful deserve the respect of the office and the service that they give in money. I don't think he's trying to draw some distinction between... I don't think the argument is about other people. There are lots of places in the Bible we could go to say where everybody is made in the image of God and therefore deserves respect. I think he's trying to say that elders deserve both. That's all. He's just... He is laying into the foundation of what the service and support of elders gives... And I don't think he's necessarily making an argument at all about how that stands in distinction to other people. Um, I, I don't think that what you're supposed to read into it is, is a distinction versus other people. I think you're supposed to read into it that he's saying elders are supposed to receive both respect and money. Okay. Um, okay. So this idea that no... So without being hasty, but that without showing partiality... Okay, why is that so, why is that such a big deal in the church? Who, who, who might we be tempted to show partiality to as an elder? No, 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 okay, okay, I love y'all. Think elders, stay elders. Who might the church of Jesus be tempted to show partiality to as elders? Huh? Darwin's been here how long? How oh, he's been here 11 years. Have you known a kinder-hearted man than Darwin Jordan? 
He's so dear and he's so funny and Kay's so sweet. And they're so wonderful. And he's so loving. And gosh, he's 64. Let the, give the dude a break. Or whatever he is. Or Mark Denton. I just saw his face. So he's just in the back. So he's, he's in the crosshairs. Right? I know nothing about this. I, I, I shouldn't do Mark. Elder X with deep pockets. He gives so much to the church. We should give him a little more room. But, but look, think about this for both of them. Partiality, either direction. Who might we be tempted to just go on and assume the process on quickly? The elder you don't like. The elders whose preaching you don't necessarily g-haul with. The elder who actually spoke up and said, so-and-so's marriage to the other person might not actually be right because and then we offended the family. And then... No partiality either way. Yeah, I love the fact that what he's trying to say is, look, the influential and the uninfluential, the popular and the unpopular, the super skilled and the not so skilled, no one gets, no one gets overlooked in terms of the course of justice, but no one gets a pass on that. Yes. There's a sense that since the leader is in some form a picture of Christ to the church as the shepherd, if in the in the viewpoint of a lay person, if if he can do it, I can do it, sort of thing. Yeah. He is more responsible in that sense as a leader, just as any leader is really over who he leads, uh, to be right and pure. Look, I, I will tell you, I am thankful for the church that we are a part of. And again, it's not about details. Y'all, Friday night, we disciplined a very well-known and well-beloved and very influential minister of the church. Because we love the church. And Friday night, we disciplined a younger man who no one outside of a certain radius knows because the honor of Jesus and the protection of the sheep and the love and the glory of the name of God and fear for the ministry and ministers and love for the men we disciplined was in place. And it's hard, but, but it is so good. Okay? That Paul says these things to us. Okay, so he cares about the, the, the support of elders in terms of payment. He cares about the support of elders both in terms of protection against accusation but also right discipline. And then he cares about the support and service of elders in terms of their appointment because in verse 22 and then 24 and 25, 
he says this, and I'm skipping 23 just because it doesn't really fit in the context of an argument. It's a little aside, but we'll come back to it. He says, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are, cannot be remain hidden. I think that's one argument from Paul to Timothy. Okay, the, so in terms of the support and the appointment of elders, what is his argument? Somebody rephrase what Paul has just said to Timothy. When it comes to the laying on of hands, okay, so don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. That is Paul's language for the ordaining of elders, right? Ministers would lay on hands as the outward kind of sign of the affirmation of the church. This is what we do in the service. So give me his argument. What's he saying? Don't be too quick to make somebody an elder. And then, what's the argument from the last two verses? Right. So the sins of some people, they're so conspicuous that you can tell it coming right like the train whistle a mile out of town. Now, that's obvious. We're not going to make them elders. Right? But some people's sins, what? They're hidden. And they only show up over time, and they only show up after you've been around them long enough. So that what? Guys, don't be quick to lay hands on and appoint somebody an elder. Get to know them. Okay, what else is true? What's the other argument in the end? So their sins can't be hidden, but what else? Okay, but what, so why is that an argument about why not being hasty? Because what might you do your first impression of somebody? This goes back to Brian. If you're, if you're in the first service, you'll hear it in the second. Like, we tend to judge a book by his cover. Should he be an elder? Well, he is an attorney. Well, that might be a yes. That wasn't a, that wasn't a, that wasn't a we hate attorney jokes. That was a, he's a leader in the community. Sorry. That wasn't a lawyer joke on my part. Come on, look, you and I struggle with vanity just like everybody else, don't we? At times we're given to first impressions. And the upside down nature of the Bible and the kingdom of God is that He knows, God knows, that we look on the outside and we look on appearances and we tend to judge the book by the cover just like everybody else, but the spiritual eyes that Jesus gives us are stuff on the inside and sometimes that stuff takes a long time to see. But good works, right? Someone who's actually equipped to be an elder, that your first impression, you may just go... He dresses kind of funny. He's out of fashion. He's got that Yankee accent. I, I don't know. He doesn't tell a good joke. But that stuff actually has to get sifted, right? Because what might you find? That the poorly dressed Yankee who can't tell a good joke, what? is a servant. And he's godly. 
And He loves the church of Jesus well. And His gifts rise to the surface. And even though it might be a little embarrassing by outward appearances from what visitors might think, he ought to be an elder. So Paul's thing is like, hey, don't be hasty. And because, look, the context of what he's trying to say is, why? What is he trying to avoid? What is this just followed? The discipline of elders, right? I think there's part of Paul's mind in this in saying of, hey, maybe if we slow down, maybe we can avoid some of the hardship along the way. Now, does that mean that elders have to be old? No, he's just made the argument, right? Don't let people despise you for your youth. Okay. Um, Okay. So, now he goes quickly, and I know I've got five minutes, four minutes to do elders drinking wine and slavery. You ready? (laughs) So, uh, verse 23. Look, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. This is a sweet pastoral moment of Paul to Timothy. He knows his brother. And the medicinal qualities of wine in that time period are just super well documented. Paul has a... Timothy has a... He carries a big load on him and he's probably concerned and he's overwhelmed by the work of an elder and he's overwhelmed by the service of the church and his stomach is upset and he's got physical ailments and Paul looks at him and cares for him and says, rephrase what he's saying. Give me the principle. Hey, Timothy, do what to yourself? Take care of yourself. And here's the principle. Timothy... Your own soul care, your own physical care, your own refreshment and needs, they actually matter. Which means, what do you want your minister to do every... Come on, I'm going to... You ready? I'm going to jump from the, the principle of Timothy. Drink some wine for your ailments to the principle of ministers should care for their well-being. Throw out some principles of that. What should ministers do every year? They should take vacations. They should get a physical. They should have a Sabbath. They should take days off. Huh? They should have some fun. Come on, I'm even going to say it. They should not answer your phone calls sometimes. (gasps) They should wait till Tuesday to call you back. I just love Paul. I just think he's looking at Timothy and being like, hey brother, yes you serve. You are a servant. Okay. Anyway, you can go. We're gone. The service of slaves. Okay, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters of worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay. I appreciate the Bible in this regard, and people have castigated the Bible for not quote-unquote taking a harder line on slavery. And let me just talk about the context of slavery in that age, which I know most of you understand. In the Roman Empire... Uh, slavery was, was institutionalized in a way that is beyond belief. 
They're saying that over 50 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves, indentured or otherwise. It upheld the economy and the social fabric in every fashion. Every wealthy person had one. Now, is this saying that the Bible says that slavery is great and good? No. If you look back at the first chapter of this book, Paul says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for sinners, for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers, mothers, for murderers, sexually immoral. Okay, those who practice homosexuality. And what? Enslavers. That the sinners and the unlawful are those who steal people to sell them into bondage and slavery. The Bible speaks about the horrific nature of slavery. But what Paul actually does here is that he understands that he actually has to give practical living to people who have to live in a world where injustice is present and will not be undone today or maybe tomorrow. Right? There are lots of places that we could go for biblical injunctions to say that we as believers should fight injustice and stand up against it. Amen. But this is the reality. People live in a world where they cannot get out of the injustices that they live under. They're going to live under it today and tomorrow and the system's not going to change and they're going to return to dust. And they're going to raise their children in it. And their children are going to live in it and die in it. And the church of Jesus should stand against it and fight against it. But as Americans, we are crazy idealists. Who think that with a little more education and a little more marketing and a little more PR, we can change it all and we can do it tomorrow. And the history of the world is, people live in systems day to day. Where injustice and the things that come with it are the life that they live. And Paul looks and says, how should you, if you have to live in that system, operate? Okay? And I love the fact that the Bible is the most realistic book I know. Because he says that those who are under bond servant service, right, they need to actually show both unbelieving masters, I think that's the first one, but also believing masters respect and honor and do their jobs. And not think that if they have a believing master, that that means that they're entitled to be disrespectful to that master. And I think what is amazing about what Paul says is something that no one else would say. He says... Because they're brothers. Okay, that statement to the ear of anybody in that day would have been so revolutionary, it would have blown your mind. Nobody would call a slave and a master a brother in any way, shape, or form. In that culture, slaves were one thing, property. You could dispose with them how you wanted, with very little reaction in some ways. And what Paul is saying is he says, look, you are brothers. But as brothers, 
Slaves actually have to show masters respect that they would honor the word of God and not show disservice to their brothers. Okay, so application in one second. Uh, yeah, one minute. We're not slaves. What's, uh, okay, and I would never say, I need to be careful. Okay, so I'm not trying to say, so hey, let's say that our employment things and slavery, that's the same thing. No, it's not. Okay. But if we're going to apply, there's an application of, I think we love that the Bible actually is both realistic and stands against injustice. But there is a principle of, okay, so what for you? You're not in slavery, but what's the principle? That you actually have to think about and go home with and show up at the water cooler tomorrow and deal with. What's the principle? There it is. You and I live in systems that are under authority. We have bosses, and we have bosses' bosses, and we have bosses' bosses' bosses, and we have people under us. And whether or not they're believers, you and I, who are bondservants of the Lord Jesus, whose yoke is what? What is the yoke of Jesus? It's kind. And it's light. Jesus calls us as employees, as people who work, as people who live in systems of authority to be respectful to those who are over. So, Paul cares about the church and he cares about how we live in day-to-day living. So, let me, let me not pray. Thanks so much. We're going to make room for people. Y'all have a good week.